Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we've uh, just started a, a series in the book of Daniel, which is a fascinating Old Testament uh, prophetic book. It predicts the future in a miraculous way. And I've entitled our message this morning, Still Here, Still God. Over 100 years ago, a tornado struck the prairies of Minnesota, just a little bit south of the Canadian border. Many people were killed. Hundreds of people were injured. And one small town was almost demolished. In the midst of that disaster, there was an elderly British surgeon and his two medically trained sons who worked almost around the clock for some time, aiding those who had been hurt by the tornado, bandaging wounds, setting broken limbs. The heroic work did not go unnoticed. Their excellence as physicians, their selflessness in the service of those in need created a following among these tornado victims, sort of a regional uh, excitement. The doctor and his sons were offered financial backing to build a hospital in that part of Minnesota, provided that they would take charge of that hospital. The men agreed, and in 1889, they founded a clinic that soon attracted nationwide attention and actually worldwide attention as that clinic grew. The city was Rochester, Minnesota. It's where Dee Dee and I ministered for 27 years. And the elderly doctor's name was William Mayo, his sons, William J. and Charles Mayo. Their clinic is now called the Mayo Clinic. You've probably heard of it. It's got about 500 physicians, actually probably about seven to 10,000 because it's a teaching hospital as well, treating a couple hundred thousand people a year. And it's known worldwide as one of the premier places of health, healing, and excellence in medicine. Now, I'm sure if you ask the citizens of that region about the Rochester tornado at that time, they would have said it was all about death and destruction. It was a disaster. But put in the perspective of better than a century and in the hands of a creative, sovereign God, the tornado was really about life, help, and healing. But only God could see that. Only God would have the wisdom to use tragedy in that way. And when we, when we hear stories of like that, and there are, there are more, we, we call this aspect of God's nature his, his sovereignty. It's more than his power, it's his sovereignty, sort of his ability to see everything at once and to manage his creation. In fact, one definition of the sovereignty of God, he has the power the wisdom and the authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. He has the power, which means he's capable. God can do anything. He has the wisdom, which means he sees outcomes that we can't see, and he acts on them. He has the authority. He has the right. He's the creator. He can do whatever he wants. In fact, I would suggest he's not really God the way we think of God without it. And our view of God definitely comes from sort of a Western uh, worldview. We get our view of God from the Bible. Throughout history, most people didn't have a view of God that he governed the whole earth. 
Gods were regional. They weren't that powerful. Our view of God comes from the scriptures, that God is all-powerful. He knows everything. He operates outside of time. He has the right to do whatever he wants. He is a sovereign God. Philip Yancey writes about this sovereignty and our inability to grasp it. He says, in high school, I took pride in my ability to play chess. I joined the chess club. And during lunch hour, could be found sitting at a table with other nerds, poring over books with titles like classic king pawn openings. And he says, I studied techniques, won most of my matches, and put the game aside for 20 years. Then he said, in Chicago, I met a truly fine chess player who had been perfecting his skills long since high school. When we played a few matches, I learned what it is like to play against a master. Any classic offense I tried, he countered with a classic defense. If I turned to more risky, unorthodox techniques, he incorporated my bold forays into his winning strategies. And although I had complete freedom to make any move I wanted to, I soon reached the conclusion that none of my strategies mattered very much. His superior skill guaranteed that my purposes inevitably served his own. And that's the way God engages his creation, his own creation. He grants us freedom to rebel against its design, but even as we do, we end up ironically serving his eventual goal of restoration. I like that analogy. We're playing checkers or beginner's chess, and God is the master chess player. We can't understand his moves. He does have to accommodate evil and free will. I don't know how he does it and still accomplishes his plan. And as he's doing that, more and more, we sit in judgment of every one of the outcomes, as though we're the chess masters, and he's the novice, don't we? Well, that would have been what was going on when this book was written, when Daniel was written, or worse. Because when the book of Daniel was written, Israel was kind of no more as a nation the way they had been in the past. The northern tribes of Israel had fallen in about 722 BC to the Assyrians. That was a little bit more than 100 years before Daniel came on the scene. The southern tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, fell in about 605 BC, plus or minus. So the Israelites had lost complete control of the promised land, of their land. And if you were in a culture in the ancient world and your nation lost wars like that, what it looked like and what was a legitimate way to view this theologically is God has lost. Your God is less powerful than the gods of the nation that just took over your land. So Daniel is living in Babylon, in Babylonia, in the service of a pagan king. We talked about that last week. He and some of his friends, some of the nobility, sort of the, the higher educated young men from Judah are brought into Babylon and they're expected to eventually serve the king. They're treated with royal treatment. And Babylon's view was if we treat a conquered enemy this way and we take a lot of their best and brightest and incorporate them into our government, they won't rebel against us in the long run. It was a very wise way of trying to conquer the world. But the question is, for the Israelites, who've all been either taken captive or they have a foreign power dominating their homeland, is God still God? Does he control the world he created or not? Has he lost control of it? Because his people aren't doing very well and it looks like his promises aren't gonna come to fruition. Is there even a future for his people if they've been deported from Israel and they're living in Babylonia? 
are the power and the promises that God made to individual Israelites still relevant if his movement seems to be losing, which is something we ask as well, more and more. Daniel 2 gives us some answers. I want you to get this Bible opened in front of you because we're gonna reference it a few different times. We're gonna read, this is a massively long chapter. And so we're not gonna read it all. We're gonna read the first part. Daniel is in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. And Daniel 2 is on page 628. So we're gonna begin with the first part of this story, tell a lot of it, and then we're gonna come back and read more of the text. So Daniel chapter two, page 628 in the Bible in front of you. We're gonna read the early part of this story. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream itself and its interpretation, in other words, you need to tell me the dream and tell me what it means. I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream. You'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. Just sort of bottom-lined it for him. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants. Tell us the dream and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anyone like this, anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There's no one else who who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them as well as their training in this service. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in, requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Just three simple points in this passage and then a couple of applications. First, the stage is set with a God-sized problem for a pagan king. This is a fascinating story and the most important thing whenever we're looking at a big biblical text, and I want you to always remember this because you can sort of use the Bible to say whatever you want it to if you rip things out of context and use it inappropriately. There are rules for interpretation. 
And one of the simplest rules, because the Bible is about elevating God and teaching us his nature, one of the simplest rules, and I think it was Haddon Robinson who said this when I was in a doctoral class in Denver. He said, always look for how God is the hero on every page of scripture and you'll probably be hitting authorial intent, what the author intended. Look for how God is the hero. And when you look at this story, you can see how it's just set up for God to be the hero. Every circumstance in Daniel's experience up to this point looks like God is having a bad year. Not just a bad year, a bad decade, a bad century. The Israelites had taken the promised land. Now, not fully, but under the days of David and Solomon in particular, they occupied most of the territory that God had intended. But they disobeyed God, and he allowed the land to be taken. What I love is this, in this story. Daniel is not the one having the dream. This isn't a dream that God gave to Daniel, and then Daniel gave the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream from God. Now it's interesting because Christians have a lot of debates about how God deals with people who aren't people of faith and whether he interacts with them in their lives. Well, this is a great story. Here's a pagan king, has no interest in the true God, and God gives him this dream because God wants to demonstrate his power in all circumstances, regardless of what it looks like. So he visits the world's most significant monarch in his sleep. And he gives him a dream or a vision, what we eventually see is a vision of the future, of future world kingdoms. It's an impossible situation to understand without God's help, since God's the one who gave this king this dream. So Nebuchadnezzar is in his palace one night, he has this dream or this vision, and he calls in his four groups of potential helpers. Now, these would involve uh, the Chaldeans. Some, some people question what exactly their role was here. They may have been a priestly class. They, they may have been more like a, a nobility class. Uh, there's some debate about that. But I would say this is a combination of, of politicians. The Chaldeans probably were a bit of that, almost like a ruling class in history. Religious scientists, like maybe legitimate astronomers, along with astrologers and people who practiced dark magic, people who did some things they shouldn't do. So you've got this whole combination of people that are all under the category of wise men and includes quite a gamut. And the Chaldeans were their spokespeople. And they do what we all would do. They get to the king, he's troubled, he's had this dream, and they ask the natural question, well, what was the dream? You tell us the dream, and you know, we'll get together, we'll huddle up, and we'll give you the interpretation. But interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar wanted what I would call the truly miraculous. He knew that they'd be guessing, just like you and I would be guessing. And he knew that a true miracle would be to get both the dream itself and its interpretation from the gods. So he's basically saying, you know, I want you to prove to me that you're really connected to the gods. And if you, are the lights going out on me? Can we get the lights back up on me? I want to be a person of light. He knew that the truly miraculous would be if you can not just tell the interpretation of the dream, but if you can actually tell the dream itself. And so that's what he asked of them. And he didn't think it was unreasonable. If his people are really connected to God, or the gods in his case, tell me the dream, because that's really the truly miraculous, tell me what I'm thinking, 
then tell me how to interpret it. So they make a second attempt. Well, what's the dream? And of course he refuses. He's like, haven't I been clear? And he offers riches for success. He says, if you get this right, I will change your lives. And if you get this wrong, I will end your lives. They were motivated. In fact, he says, you'll be torn limb from limb. And there are a couple of options for what that may have involved uh, back then. And here, here are the two uh, options from Assyrian culture. One of them is they'd be hacked to pieces with swords. And that's the one that makes the most sense. But there's, because it says torn limb from limb, some commentators think this was just a little more creative. And what they would do in ancient Assyria, evidently they had perfected this, they would take trees that um, could be bent a little bit and you know, sort of pulled together and they would tie a rope to the tops of four trees. And then they would tie a person underneath those four trees to four ropes, arms and legs. And then they would cut the upper rope and let the trees snap back into place. And that would literally tear the person limb from limb. So I would say this is a motivated group of palace officials. They're hoping they don't have to experience that. And when you have the two choices of the whole tree thing versus the swords, I think I just take the swords, although the tree thing is pretty exciting. Because who's ever seen that? So they're motivated. I love verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, now again, remember, we're setting the stage for God to be the hero on every page of scripture. Here's what they said. There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this. In other words, you alone are asking for this. Nobody's ever done this, Nebuchadnezzar. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There is no, no one else who could declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. In other words, they make it clear to him. Nobody can do this. Nobody ever has done this. No earthly human could possibly figure this out. And no earthly human has ever asked anybody else to figure this out. In other words, from an earthly perspective, this is completely unreasonable, sir. Only a heavenly connection could possibly give us an answer to something like this. And so Nebuchadnezzar follows through on his word, and he basically says, okay, kill them all. And don't forget the trainees, by the way. So Daniel and his friends are going to die. Ariok, or with the bodyguard, is coming to Daniel's quarters where he and his friends lived. They were in service. They were in training to become wise men in the palace. But because they're a part of the group, Nebuchadnezzar's view is, if nobody can come up with an answer to my dream and its interpretation, we're just doing the scorched earth policy. We're killing everybody, and we're recruiting new wise men. So they get to Daniel's house, and his friend's house, and Daniel... Daniel says, Let, let's see if we can get some time here. But that's the setup. God has given a pagan king, not Daniel, God has given a pagan king a dream, a vision that only God can solve. The next point, which is where God is going, God is still here, still God in every circumstance. 
Again, that's one of the big questions is, how are the people of Israel to know whether they can trust the promises of God? They've been deported. A foreign power occupies their country. It looks like their God, who we would say is our God, is losing. It looks like he doesn't have control of this world. It looks like he doesn't have control of his own people. And it looks like you can't count on him to fulfill any of his promises. He's a has-been. He's losing. He's yesterday's news. So the hit squad comes to Daniel's house. Daniel asked for an audience with the king. He asked for time. He didn't argue about the request. He didn't say to the king, it's unreasonable for you to ask for not just the interpretation but the dream itself. He just asked for time. And he told his friends to start praying. Now, presumably that night, we don't know for sure, but presumably that night, Daniel has a vision or a dream. And the dream and its interpretation are revealed. And that confirmed for Daniel a wonderful reality that a lot of people around him were wondering about. It confirmed that God's power was not confined to just the land that Israel used to occupy, the promised land. God's promises and protection, his love, follow his people wherever they go, even if you're the only person in a foreign land who follows the true God and you're ready to be martyred, it doesn't matter. God's power and his promises follow you in that kind of isolation. When it looks like God and his movement are losing, which it does in the Western world, it looks like God is yesterday's news, he's a has-been, he's losing, secular forces are running over the church, he's not losing. God is just fine. He's still here, he's still God in every circumstance. Notice Daniel's words. Now, this is before Daniel interprets the dream. This is just when God comes through and tells Daniel what the dream is. Verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Verses 20 and 21, he says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. In other words, God raises up nations and he lets them fall. He's in control of all of it. He's had a vision of God's sovereign role of the future, which we're gonna talk about in a moment when the dream is interpreted. In verse 23, he says, to you, O God of my fathers. I love that. It's like he's the same God. He's still God. The same God who parted the Red Sea. The same God who's with David in the Valley of Elah against Goliath. The same God who won wars. Yes, we've been deported. Yes, it's not looking good. But the God of my fathers came through. The God of miracles. Verses 27 and 28, as he's explaining this to Nebuchadnezzar, when he gets to Nebuchadnezzar and starts explaining the dream, he says, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. In other words, it's a God-sized problem. We both know that. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known what will take place in the latter days. And then he tells him the dream. Imagine how Daniel's heart and his faith soared as he continues to discover God's faithfulness 
when as far as we know, only a few Israelites were actually believing in and standing for God in this foreign country. Remember last week when Daniel and his three friends decided, yeah, we're not gonna have the king's meat and the king's wine that were offered to false gods. We're, we're willing to die for that. We really don't wanna die, but we're willing to, and so we're gonna just stand for God. Remember what we said last week? There's no evidence that Daniel and his three friends were the only Israelite boys in that sort of group of trainees. There could have been 50 or 100 of them. But only four said they would stand with God in a foreign land. So when God comes through and Daniel sees this, just imagine his heart and his faith as God is still here, still God in every circumstance. Third, and this is the dream, God has a plan for the ages and it ends with his reign. Now we're gonna get into the dream a little bit. So what Daniel tells the king, and we're just gonna read a few things in a moment, but first, the dream was basically that Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant statue that was just extraordinary. It was this massive statue sort of standing on the plains of Babylon. It had a head of gold, it had a chest and arms of silver, it had a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet sort of mixed with iron and clay. And finally, as this giant is standing out in the plains of, of Babylonia, there's, there's a mountain nearby, and a giant stone comes down from that mountain. It's sort of cut out of that mountain. It keeps growing bigger and bigger. It hits the legs of that giant statue and crushes everything. The whole thing becomes dust, and then that giant stone fills the whole earth. That's basically the story. And I know what you're thinking. You've had better dreams than that. I have too. I'm not impressed with the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, no disrespect, it's, just, it's not a great dream. But it is when you understand what it was actually telling about. Verse 36, this was the dream, now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Stay with me here. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Notice the sovereign nature of God. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, the God of heaven gave you this kingdom. You're the king. And whoever the sons, wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. You are the first kingdom that you saw in that dream. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you and then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, and it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. 
By the way, at the end, which I'm not really talking about, the king fell on his face, which is something a king in that era would not do before Daniel, and said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. And he promoted Daniel. Daniel wrote this book before he died. Now, interestingly, and this is just a little tidbit that I think is impactful, beginning in chapter 2, verse 7, the book of Daniel is not in Hebrew. Hebrew is what the Old Testament is written in. Greek is what the New Testament is written in. Daniel chapter 2, verse 7, and for many chapters thereafter, has the largest non-Hebrew, non-Greek passage in the scriptures. It's Aramaic, from chapter 2, 7 through chapter 7, verse 28. Aramaic is the language of the Babylonian Empire, and possibly of empires after that for a period of time. In other words, this book would have been readable and understandable outside of Israel for generations. God went on the record with Israel and with the known world about his plans for the future, and he did it in a language that everybody could read, even outside of Israel. Here's what he predicted. Four major world empires would exist before the Messiah comes to earth. All right, so this is happening in right around 600 B.C. So, I mean, this may not thrill you. It's like, yeah, the book of Daniel, it's in the Bible, whatever. I know the story about Daniel and the lion's den. God predicts 600 years of world history to a pagan king. That's what's going on here. Four major world empires would exist before Messiah comes to rule. The key to what these empires are depends on when Daniel was, was written. So some people who want to take away the miraculous nature of prophecy and the scriptures just say, the book wasn't written by Daniel, it's probably written you know, maybe 200 BC, and, and so it takes away the predictive element. And that's what liberal scholars do. They're like, well, we can't really believe in miracles because that just, well, we just can't do that. That would mean God is God and we can't have that. So we'll just say all these Bible passages were written after the events actually happened so we can somehow make sense of them in our naturalistic thinking. Some say it was written centuries later, but here's the problem with that. Daniel claims to have written it, which would give it a sixth century date. The genre, the style of literature is historical narrative. I mean, it's just written as history. And when you read things that are written as history, you should take them as history. Otherwise, I don't know how you interpret this book in any meaningful way. Jesus refers to both Daniel and the book as well. So this is one of the problems with people who want to explain away Old Testament events and Old Testament literature, is when Jesus speaks to an issue, I kind of have a struggle saying Jesus is wrong about Daniel, because then I'd say Jesus is imperfect if he can't get the Old Testament right. Jesus affirms Daniel and his book. And there's great evidence that the book of Daniel was accepted as part of the Old Testament canon or group of books long before the second century. So, assuming a conservative view of this, Daniel wrote this book in his lifetime in the sixth century BC. This particular vision he's interpreting is right around 600 BC. And it's not about Jewish history, it's about world history which is to come. Babylon was the head of gold. Most scholars interpret this that way. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's stated to be that. 
Medo-Persia was the next empire, the breast and arms of silver. Now what's interesting is Daniel even states it's gonna be an inferior empire to Babylon. And in fact, these, these, the decreasing value of the metals from gold to silver to bronze to, to iron, you know, a lot of scholars believe there's something to that, that the, the purity of these empires and the monarchical rule sort of continues to, to go downhill. You've got Babylon, the head of gold, a pure monarchy, then Medo-Persia, a little weaker, and then the Greco-Macedonian, or Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze under Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire, which would be the legs of iron with feet mixed with iron and clay. It was more of a republic. It was sort of a loose assortment of nations. The depreciating value of metals is seen as the trend from absolute monarchy to the weaker, loose federation of nations under the Roman Republic. And then finally, in the middle of that Roman Empire, the stone that crushes all represents the coming of Messiah's kingdom, which will last forever. Now we know looking back that nations still existed after that, but the influence of this fifth kingdom permeates the whole world and still does. Everything was planned out. God had lost control of nothing. He saw the future. That was the point to Daniel, which was the point to Nebuchadnezzar. Couple applications for us. First, God is always in control, or he is not God. Daniel has a few key themes. One of them is God's sovereignty. God has the power, the wisdom, the authority to do anything he chooses within his creation. During the writing of the book of Daniel, during his life, it looked bad for God with Israel in captivity. I don't know how you could be an Israelite and have confidence in God during that time. Yet in this story, the gods of the Babylonians are powerless and the true God shows that he has no boundaries, that he is in control of all things. He predicts the rise and fall of kingdoms. In verse 21, Daniel says he removes kings and establishes kings. God is still here. He's still God. He's got all the power he ever had when he created this world. God is always in control or he is not God. It is the, the Christian and Jewish view of God. He's a sovereign God. That's what we read in the scriptures. It's not a view of God throughout all of history in all places. It is the Christian and, and Jewish view of God, that he is completely sovereign. That's a problem. Which brings me to my second point. Don't let the sovereignty of God be a cause for blame instead of comfort. Sometimes the fact that God is a sovereign God is a source of doubt and frustration in the lives of those who follow him, including my own. God is playing advanced chess. God is sovereign throughout all of history. We're playing checkers and beginners chess. And yet we judge God harshly because he is in control and we don't like what's going on in the world. In some ways, and this theology is out there, it's starting to become more popular among young evangelicals. In some ways, it would be easier if God were weak, wouldn't it? It'd be easier if, if God wasn't sovereign, if God didn't have as much power, and he was sort of weak, and he's fighting the forces of evil, and we, we could root for him like, God, I hope you can pull this one out, because I'd sure like to believe the book of Revelation and that you win, 
You know, we could kind of hope and pray that God could elevate his game, get back on the field, pump some iron, get a little stronger. It would be easier for us in some ways if God were not sovereign. But he is. He is in complete control of this world. He is not weak, and that's a problem because it means he's strong enough to intervene wherever he wants to and yet does not. That's the problem we have with God. All kinds of things happen in the world that we're not happy about. God is sovereign, it's his show. And somehow he has to manage evil. Somehow he allows Satan to be the prince of this world, the Bible says. Somehow he has to deal with all of these things that we don't fully understand. But at the end of the day, we know he's still powerful enough to do whatever he wants and to intervene however he wishes. And when we see things happen around the world, our natural question, just like Daniel and his buddies would be, where is God? Where's God? Where's God in World War II? The extermination of a nation and anyone who was handicapped or wasn't part of the master race. Where's God in Africa through one genocide after another? Where is God on the edge of the Ukrainian border today? It's a fair question. We absolutely believe in a sovereign, all-powerful God. And because of that, he disappoints us because we want him to get involved where sometimes we don't see him involved enough. Graham Cook says this, God is consistent, but he's also unpredictable. He's consistent in his nature. You always know where you are with God, but you seldom know what he's going to do next. You cannot find security in what God is doing. There's only security in who God is. I like that. It's honest. You're not always gonna find security in what God is doing because a lot of times, I mean, he's playing master chess and we do not understand it. And we do not see how anything good can come out of some of the things that are going on in the world but we still choose to believe that he's a good God and he's God. This is supposed to be a comfort. And I think throughout history, it has been a comfort to people of faith. But I think that's changed a lot as we get more skeptical about the God of the Bible. It's supposed to be a comfort also because if you're a Christ follower, the goal of God in our lives is Christ-likeness. I mean, that's what he's after. He's trying to make us like Jesus, which means through suffering and difficulty and pain, he actually gets that accomplished. When my life is not going well, God is probably creating character in me based on the scriptures, which say when life isn't going well, God creates character in us, especially in Romans 8. talks about it. Problem is, I'm not aligned with that goal. I want less character transformation and less pain. That's my goal. So when I'm at odds with what God wants, I tend to resent him because I'm not really trying to get on board with this whole character transformation thing in the first place. I mean, that's his idea. That was never my idea. Don't let the sovereignty of God be a cause for blame instead of comfort. And third, 
Don't let the circumstances of your life talk you out of God's promises. Daniel could have assumed God was no longer relevant in Babylon. And I suspect that most of his contemporaries did just that. Again, we have no reason to believe that Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and the other dude, the four of them, we have no reason to believe that, it was just, that there were just four young Judean men who were put in the king's service. No reason to believe that. Daniel were the, was, was part of the four that stood, and he led them. The rest of them are probably assuming, hey, we lost. God's having a bad century. He doesn't seem to be protecting us anymore. His promises aren't relevant. But the four of them stayed faithful, and they saw one actual miracle after another in their lives as God came through in a foreign land where his people had been deported to. Daniel is about trusting that God sees the bigger picture, but God is still God wherever we go. And I think that's a little bit relevant for us today as we continue to see in Western society in particular, a continual slide away from any kind of consistent belief in orthodoxy in the history of this book. It, it does kind of look like we're losing. It does kind of look like the church in 20 years is not going to be where the church is today, and it's only going the wrong direction. And if you've known the Lord for, some of you have known the Lord for 80 years, and you've seen a lot, and a lot of it's a little depressing. Looks like God's on the ropes. Look like his people are going to be on the ropes. The future doesn't look bright. I get that. I agree. Now, there are places in the world where Christianity is exploding. There are continents where Christianity is exploding. But not here. We're continuing to explain away more and more of historic faith. And so it's easy to sort of get depressed and think, yeah, God's, God's having a hard, hard year, hard decade, hard century. And, and can we really count on God's promises? I want to close with this story. Professor Craig Keener. Now, what's interesting about this is I actually have a book on my shelf, a New Testament backgrounds book by this guy. He's an excellent scholar. Professor Craig Keener shares the following story in an issue of Christianity Today. It said around 1960 in the Republic of Congo, a two-year-old girl named Therese was bitten by a snake. She cried out for help, but by the time her mother, Antoinette, reached her, Therese was unresponsive and seemed to have stopped breathing. No medical help was available to them in their village, so Antoinette strapped little Therese to her back and ran to a neighboring village. According to the National Library of Medicine, brain cells start dying less than five minutes after their oxygen supply is removed. After six minutes, a lack of oxygen can cause severe brain damage or death. Antoinette estimates that given the distance and the terrain, it took about three hours to reach the next village for help. In other words, brain damage. By the time they arrived, her daughter was likely either dead or had sustained significant brain damage. She wasn't breathing. Antoinette immediately sought out a family friend, Coco uh, Ngamo Moise, who was an evangelist in the neighboring village. They prayed over the lifeless girl and immediately she started breathing again. By the next day, she was fine, no, longer, uh, no long-term harm and no brain damage. And you say, okay, so that's just a story that nobody can verify and you know, somebody's saying it happened over in another continent. It's another one of these stories about a miracle that we can't prove. 
Today, Therese has a master's degree and is a pastor in Congo. Craig writes, when I heard this story as a Westerner, I was naturally tempted towards skepticism, but it was hard to deny. Therese is my sister-in-law and Antoinette is my mother-in-law. No matter what it looks like for the kingdom of God and his people, don't let the circumstances of your life talk you out of God's promises. Now I know I've talked about, and I've said this, from the stage, and I know it sounds like I'm a skeptic when I say it, that a lot of the miracles in the Bible happen during very narrow epochs throughout salvation history. It's actually true. But it doesn't mean God isn't God all the time. And it doesn't mean that there aren't situations, no matter how bad the circumstances, where God doesn't rise up and do the miraculous and absolutely demonstrate who he is. That he's still here, and he's still God, no matter what it looks like. God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for the example of the life of Daniel. It's pretty incredible for these young men to have this kind of faith in you, to stand for you in a situation where it looked like things were never going to be the same. It looked like you had lost. And yet you demonstrated in this story, not just to Daniel and his friends, but to a pagan king who ruled the world, that you are God, that you alone cause nations to rise and fall, you never lose control of your creation. We may have questions about why things happen and how you manage this world, but you are God, and we trust that, and we're intended to find comfort in that. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.